Waking Up is Not Enough, Flourishing in the Human Space, a podcast by Polly Young Eisendraff and Michael Berger. Maybe you've had a spiritual awakening, a near-death experience, a breakthrough on psychedelics, an encounter with spiritual beings, solving a Zen koan, or being born again. It might have been a heart opening or a cosmic download, but you saw and heard and felt the oneness of existence. Although you peeked into our shared home of unified reality, you are not handed a roadmap there. In fact, there is no roadmap for living well in the human space. In this podcast, we will draw on psychology, spirituality, stage development theory, real dialogue, psychoanalysis, and the history of psychedelics to penetrate the mysteries of waking up and growing up. Through conversations and interviews, we will discover what it means to flourish in the human space, where waking up is important, but not enough, and growing up is never finished. Co-hosts Polly Young Eisendraff and Michael Berger bring different kinds of expertise. Polly is an author, a psychologist, Jungian analyst, longtime Zen practitioner, couple therapist, and founder of Dialogue Therapy and Real Dialogue. Michael Berger is an entrepreneur, an expert in psychedelics, a spiritual practitioner of Jewishness, a skeptic, a Real Dialogue specialist, and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary, Improbable Collapse, The Demolition of Our Republic. Polly and Michael engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. In this episode, we're going to talk about who awakens. Well, this question sounds like a Zen puzzle or a koan. It is also the case that individual people human beings have these awakening experiences and they each have a personality and a lens or a framework through which they perceive things, even through which they peeked into the infinite nature of reality. In other words, awakening is a first person experience. In this episode, Polly and Mike will talk about their own experiences and their beliefs, ideas, and theories about how personality interacts with waking up. Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. So today, I think we're going to get a little personal here because we're going to talk about our own personal awakenings. And at least for me, I'm going to talk about them as they occurred in different times, chronological times of my life, and how my personality at that time might have influenced my takeaway from the awakening. So we're going to be talking about the awakening experiences as we imagine they're happening for different people, how they happen for ourselves. But then how does that experience get integrated or brought back into that person's life. And we've, we mentioned this in the first episode that waking up is an ontological shock and it brings into perspective 
this sense of being an individual self. But then we have to bring that perspective, that ontological shock with its new sort of questions and insights, bring it back into the walking around life. I want to say something about the question, just because a lot of people don't know that it's a Zen puzzle or even why it is a Zen puzzle, who awakens. And there's another Zen puzzle that gets phrased as who suffers. So who awakens and who suffers are sort of the same puzzle. And the reason that it is a puzzle is that if this habitual self, this sense of I-ness is a delusion, then who is awakening or who is suffering? If there is no self, then why is it so hard to get rid of that self, you know, or hold that self lightly? So who awakens has a very big puzzling sense. It's like a perplexity in the Zen tradition. I think in for other people, I don't know, but you could tell me, I don't know if this question has a deep spiritual meaning in psychedelics or, and I certainly don't think in the other forms of awakening, I don't think in, you know, evangelical awakening or near-death experience, I don't think the question gets asked. Well, I think in, in the psychedelic world, there is, there's a term for a large dose, a heroic dose, which dissolves the default mode network or the boundaries of ego in which we may sometimes feel encased. There also may be a misunderstanding of, because I've heard people throw around the notion that you can kill your ego or that this is an objective to be obtained, which I think is in itself a delusion. Because again, the paradox of you have to have the ego in order to function and mediate reality and interaction at the same time, it's our identification as that self, which I think is what shifts dramatically when whatever aspect of our, what term do you want to call it, right? Our higher self, our better self, our true self, whatever this core essence that seems to be beyond the delusion of ego, the challenge in that awakening process is the insight that you have in that expanded awareness now bringing it back into a mass culture that has everyday demands, like walking the dog, doing the dishes, picking up the kids, that becomes a great challenge, I think, at least for me, is how to live those insights and to bring more, the way the way I ended uh, the first episode, to try to bring a more, more compassion into our everyday lives with each other. So let me just uh, roll out this thing about compassion, which I know that you know that I've talked about a lot. So, you know, coming into a human form, let's say, let's just look at that for a moment, because we're talking about humans awakening here. We're not talking about the dogs or the cockroaches or whatever that might actually be open to the oneness most of the time. It's just possible that the oneness factor and being a cockroach is not an issue. You know, they're just participating. They, they don't have questions about it. <laughs> so to, to get into this human form, there's only one way to get here. That is that a woman gives birth to you. And so in that interuterine formation, 
where you're coming into your form. We know from doing research on multiple births that even the infant in uterine has compassion. We see the multiple birth infants stroking each other on the forearm, comforting each other. They definitely show the capacity for compassion. Similarly, the newborn infant looking at the mother's face. If the mother's face goes blank, the infant will do everything to try to be there, be, bring back the contact with the mother. In other words, the infant wants her to look alive and to look engaged. The infant wants her to feel good. Now, the infant is not saying that as an individual infant, like, oh, I want my mother to feel good. No, it's built in. It is a design feature that all of us have being human. We can feel others' feelings. We can see others' distress. We can respond by comforting. And we can do that without enlightenment. We do that by our nature. So how could that be such a problem? How could it be that even after you've had a profound ontological shock and you have wakened to the deep oneness of this whole space-time thing that we're in, that you can't feel much compassion for your spouse who's complaining about the hot weather, doing the dishes, walking the dog. You know, you're irritated. So the question of who awakens then becomes a little less trivial because whoever was having that experience of, what did you call it, like the death of the ego or this heroic shock or whatever, whoever was having that experience has difficulty bringing it back for reasons that aren't that clear, especially because as a human, as a human, that person has within their nature, compassion. And then this other thing, curiosity, primary emotion. Infants show curiosity from birth. Doesn't get taught, no one teaches it to them, that deep interest and engagement in their reality is what they will need in order to develop. So it's built in. So just tell me your thoughts about what you believe interferes with after one of these profound waking ups, what interferes with anyone's ability to be compassionate with others, to be able to relate, even relate, you know, even the people that have these near-death experiences, about 65% of them divorce their spouses because they can no longer relate in a way that allows them to stay together in their marriages. Like, what's the deal there? So tell me what your thoughts are about that, about in terms of why is it so hard to bring this back? What is it about the human that we don't seem to be able to retain our natural compassion, our natural curiosity, even after a profound awakening. Well, I think part of the central aspect of our consciousness, of our self-awareness that shifts, bringing it back 
can be, for one, very confusing if there isn't a mentor or a guidebook to follow, as we discussed. So there isn't a simple way to incorporate the expanded insights and shifts in personality into our everyday life. Also, I think it's connected to living out of habit. We, we have these neurological shortcuts where things almost become like a muscle memory, like learning how to drive a stick car. You have to think about it in the beginning till eventually your unconscious takes over and you no longer have to think about what you're doing. I think in a sense, this is one way maybe of looking at how it is that we perceive ourselves. We're in this automatic zone where everything kind of takes care of itself. We're setting goals. We're trying to achieve. We're trying to make things happen in the world. Going back to that push and pull of ego on trying to control. From this broader perspective, there isn't anything to control. There isn't anywhere to go or a goal to achieve because the aspect that this core self that awakens during this process transforms, I think, how I perceive myself in the world. This can also lead to shifting beliefs and values. And I think that speaks to why the statistics show that people who've gone through these traumatic transformations of a radical awakening may not be able to maintain their current relationships or marriages. When one partner shifts at a fundamental level where their values change, it's not just about what you believe, but you, in essence, become a different person if you embody these, if you're able to integrate these insights, you are walking through the world in a very different way. It can also be painful to be more open and connected and receptive and have a greater awareness because you also have a greater awareness of the pain caused by our habitual unconscious sleepwalking in the world. You know, while you're saying this, and I agree with everything you say, there is something that is paradoxical about the way we think maybe about awakening. For example, if you believe that you take a substance, like a psychedelic substance, and it does something to your brain that releases something that then leads to this awakening, there is a way that you've already nailed down a kind of story of materialism that might make it difficult to unnail it or loosen it up a little bit, you know? In other words, the way we tell the story of what brings about the awakening, I think, is one issue as to who awakens and, you know, what happens as a result of that awakening. So if you tell a materialistic story, like I took this substance, it changed my brain, my brain did this, my brain did that, and I dropped the default mode network and so on and so forth. That's one kind of story. Another kind of story, and here I was thinking about some of the research that the Jungian analyst Leslie Stein has done, people who have deep mystical experiences and then become more narcissistic. If you have told yourself the story that it was because of your efforts or your 
let's say, ability to meditate or your capacity for something or other, if you tell yourself that story, that can also lead to a feeling of being special after you've had these experiences and then maybe hard to relate to people who haven't had them. I mean, again, because you're telling yourself a story about being special. And then another way of thinking of this is the near-death experience where you didn't really intend for this to happen at all. And it happened to you, but now you, you really can't see a reason to earn money in the way you used to earn money. And you can't see a reason to do this sort of, I'm going to go to work every day and do these tasks, et cetera, et cetera. And yet your partner says, you've got to do that in order for us to keep on living in this house. And so then you say, well, why do we need to live in this house? This house is not that important. So again, that's a different way of telling that story. And, and what I want to kind of bring in here is that the story we tell to ourselves about our awakening is a product or a byproduct of the, let's say, lens that we use for seeing reality and ourselves, the way that we understand how things work inside of space-time, <laughs> you know, which I keep calling it space-time in the Buddhist framework, it's called samsara, the wheel of life and death. And, but we're, we're inside of a, let's say, we could call it universe, or I don't like to use that because it gets formalized, but we're, we're in some sort of existence here that's, that's fundamentally interconnected. And we can recognize by our physics and various other things that nothing here is separated out from anything else. Everything needs everything else in order to exist as it is. And we have this delusion of being separate. And that delusion is what gets broken down in an awakening. But the story we tell ourselves about why we awakened, who awakened, what kind of person we are now that we've awakened, I think is a product of our developmental level. And you and I are gonna be talking about stages of development for adults. So I just wanna drop into the mix here, the story that, that one of my Buddhist teachers, Shinzen Young, told me about Osama bin Laden after 9-11. So Shinzen and I were, you know, at that point I had been studying and practicing with him for quite a long time. And so we were pretty good friends. We were watching some of that video together of Osama bin Laden. After 9-11, you saw a lot of video on television where he's walking around, he's in and out of a cave, he's teaching some people, he's reading some poetry and so on. I knew myself, the way he was walking, the way he was moving, it was very, compelling. I could watch him all day long and not tire of seeing how he moved. And Shinsen said, he's enlightened. He is awake by the way he moves, the way he talks, gives every indication that he's awake. But who is awake there? Somebody who has a developmental level, I would say, of a four to six-year-old in terms of the way he looks at self and other, he looks at a group of people, his tribe, are holy, and they want the best for the world. And, and their vision for the world is so good that others could be killed, and it would be fine because it supports the idea that the others are bad. 
and they are good. So the vision that Osama bin Laden brings to his awakening is a vision of deep sacredness, but it's only for some people that there is this deep sacredness. So that affects what he's going to do with his deep awakening. And maybe he took the deep awakening into a framework that made a lot of sense to him. And maybe he practiced it from that perspective. But he was missing that primary compassion, that primary curiosity, because even after his awakening, he was still Osama bin Laden. And so the story that he would tell about his awakening you know, might be about infidels, infidels, it might be about the sacred, but it would be an important story to tell his followers. Similarly, the story that people tell about psychedelics and what kind of substance they're taking and how it changes their brain, or the story I might tell about absorption states and what they mean and so on. Those stories are going to affect what we're going to do with our awakening. And the story is a byproduct or a product of our personalities, of the what we bring to our everyday lives and the continuity that we believe between the way we remember the awakening and where we are today is going to, that continuity is going to be carried by that personality, the way that we cast things. So I want to bring that up because I think that as we move along, some of the questions that we have about who awakens have to do with the stories that people tell about themselves and others, the stories they tell about the awakenings. And I would say it's a result of something that I would call personality. You know, you could call it character. You could call it character structure. That personality will express the awakening in different ways from some other personality. So in that awakening, what I'm hearing you discuss, there's the potential to transcend the limitations of our, of our cultural and individual story, this narrative that we share as a culture, and then our own individual interpretation of that narrative that we repeat to ourselves. It's the ongoing monologue of how we interpret our own inner experience. I wanted to jump back about this notion of this materialistic model, which is the predominant paradigm of our time, I would say, at least in, in science currently, which I do see shifting, where for, for many people, they see what is primary or that the world is made up of an objective reality of physical things and that they are perceiving this objective reality and that that objective reality is what they have been birthed from, which is distinct from what appears to be a new vision that's emerging now at the frontiers of science of a world that is primarily formed by consciousness and that what we observe and perceive to be an objective world is created by our sense perceptions. And it is not that there isn't an objective world out there. It's that I can't say anything about that objective world. I can only say something 
from my own perspective about my own experience. And so the story that I tell myself, whether it's part of the cultural story or my individual narrative, these awakenings only have the potential to shift those narratives. In other words, they may temporarily suspend part of a narrative. I'm not a good person. I'm incredibly compassionate. My self-perception may change. I may have increased self-awareness. I may be better able to introspect. I may feel more openness, more connectedness. And I would also add this radical curiosity as an aspect of this experience. But as you pointed out, that doesn't mean you're going to transcend your cultural or personal narrative. And it's, it's easy to fall back into that. And another point I just wanted to touch on is how that relates to the notion, at least with psychedelics, there may be some circles of people who look at it in that materialistic frame, that it's a substance activating pathways, neural certain neural pathways in my brain. But from the consciousness perspective, Aldous Huxley wrote uh, the book with the title, The Doors of Perception. To him, these substances altered and cleansed his perceptual understanding of himself and of the world and of the social world. And that it gave him the ability or it provides us with an opportunity to maybe operate on that narrative and to shift the narrative or to escape the narrative. And I think this is related to what you raised with the issue of the awakening happens at the level you're at with your personality and where you are at a stage of development. It doesn't transform you into a mythical Buddha or Christ figure who is entirely going to be able to walk in the world freed of any cultural or personal baggage or history from their developmental growth process. So the developmental stage, which, which we'll get into, I mean, the one example you gave was of somebody who goes through a near-death experience and they come out of it and basically say to their partner, you know, when I'm dead, the last thing I'm going to say to myself is I really should have worked more and made more money. So what's important shifts radically. And I, I, I find it fascinating that the most, at least it appears that the most lasting effect of personality change comes from, in a way, an awakening that's an imposed and not chosen practice or done with discipline almost dying or actually dying and as you pointed out like this is put upon you this isn't chosen and that seems to have a much more potent lasting ability to change our narrative permanently it what appears to be as close to a very long lasting change whereas whether it's meditation psychedelics it really requires an ongoing practice of maintaining, of a practice of maintaining that awakened awareness and bringing it in to our everyday relationships. Well, you know, you've, you're, you're bringing together so many things that are so important to the conversation that we're going to be having on a continuing basis. 
But one of the things I, I just want to take as a kind of a slight sidebar, and then I'll come back to who awakens and personality, is this the issue that you brought up about what, what I call the, hegemo the hegemony of materialism, because somebody else called it that along the way. That is that the reality that we live in, the collective reality, and here I'm talking about North America and probably a lot of the world that's connected to North America is one in which ordinary people largely believe that there is a real world out there and that the real world out there is what they're perceiving and that we collectively perceive the world in the same way so that you and I see the same building, the same tree, the same sky, et cetera. We hear the same sounds. We know that, that money really does count in life because we all have to live by money, et cetera. So the idea is that there is something out there that carries a lot of weight for what happens in here, which is perhaps what people consider to be their mind, their brain, their subjectivity or whatever. So you, you kind of you know, forecast it slightly. What's going to be the case is that you and I have essentially retired from that way of seeing things as a primary solution to what's happening here. And we've joined the group of people that say consciousness somehow, we don't know how, but it seems like consciousness is generating space-time rather than space-time generating consciousness. And that means that the, say, the speed of light is not the fastest speed. It also means that, you know, what we take to be the tree is not the tree. It has to do with the perceiver, the observer of the tree. And all of this sort of has some relation to subatomic physics, but it goes beyond subatomic physics in the kind of physics that's looking at the perspective of beyond space-time. So we're going to be talking about a lot of that, and that's going to intersect with awakening, because obviously the way that people experience awakening is that they awaken into a field of consciousness. It's not, they're not, you know, awakening to the reality of the stone being the ultimate foundation of the world, <laughs> that the, the stone is the thing. We are moving overall in, these, in this podcast into a larger conversation about moving beyond the hegemony of materialism. And that has a lot to do with awakening. And then the other thing that I, I wanted to, you know, just spend a moment on here is this idea that no matter what people are like in their lives, when they awaken, they awaken to something that has to do with what we call love, which is some sort of unitary principle, something that is about the profound interdependence of our existence. It is very ironic and maybe paradoxical and maybe even beyond anything in my wheelhouse to understand that you could awaken to this love, but you couldn't then relate to your spouse. You know, that you could awaken to this love, but you're still estranged from your brother. Like, what are you awakening to? You know, if, if, you, can't, if you can't actually relate to the people that are in your little human space, like what I would call your snow globe world, they're there all the time because you know them well. If you can't relate to them, 
after your awakening, well, what does that mean? You know, obviously you could say, well, that's a failed awakening, but well, hey, you know, I don't want to criticize somebody else's awakening, <laughs> but I do think that awakening does not equip us. It does not equip us to relate to the people we care most about, nor does it, does it equip us directly to deal with our own personality, which is often unconscious to us. We do not see it. We do not know it. We assume that the way we see the tree is accurate. We don't assume that the way we see the tree has something to do with the way we felt about our grandmother or something like that. You know, so I think that looking at the issue of who awakens is partly looking at the, let's say, limits of the personality to bring love into the world even after awakening. And just one little word here about the Buddha and Jesus, and then we can move on this wonderful conversation. I have lately been pondering these two spiritual figures who were very different figures in the way they brought awakening into the world. And, you know, in the case of the Buddha, when the Buddha is born, the story goes, you know, his mother dies in childbirth. She dies within the week. That's one thing. So he has this primary loss. But in his birth, he stands up very quickly and he walks three steps. Flowers grow up at his footsteps. And he says, as the divine infant that he is, he says, I am the world honored one. I am the world honored one. And so he expresses this oneness that he is the embodiment of this oneness. There's a word in, in Sanskrit called tathagata, which means thus come and thus gone, simultaneously come and gone. And, and he's expressing there, I am the tathagata. I am human, but I am expressing this oneness. Now, Jesus, by contrast, He's born in a manger. He has this kind of lowly birth. He doesn't, you know, it's not clear he's got a father. Things aren't very clear for him at the beginning, even though these kings come to visit him as an infant. But his birth is very human. It's very much like, I'm an ordinary human. I'm coming in here confused. I don't know what's going on. And Jesus achieves his oneness, his enlightenment through especially suffering and crucifixion. And so Jesus's enlightenment, you could say, is symbolized as crucifixion, suffering, whereas the Buddha's enlightenment is, is really symbolized by awakening, oneness. And those are two paths to various kinds of awakening. One thing that, that we'll talk about when we talk about stages of development, the research on adult development pretty much shows that adults don't develop without a crisis. In other words, their habits don't change without a crisis. Now, psychedelics, near-death experience, intense meditative states, they create ontological shock, a crisis. But a lot of times that crisis, if you think that you have it under control, like you'll take the drug and it will become your crisis. 
that's a little different from the crisis that is caused by your spouse saying, if you don't get a job, I will leave you. That's a crisis out of your control. And so I have this little hypothesis that the Buddha guides us through this oneness principle and Jesus guides us through crises, suffering. Both, both paths deal with suffering tremendously. They both have wonderful teachings about suffering, but just as individual personalities, the Buddha is the oneness personality. He leaves his wife and his baby. Jesus, we, we believe, got married to Mary Magdalene and had kids and so on. And probably that could be true because rabbis do that. He didn't really welcome the crucifixion. <laughs> he was like, really? I got to do this now? But so he was, he was following this kind, of, this kind of human path of suffering, trying to figure it out along the way. So I just want to mention those because I do think they're different personalities. And I think their awakenings are different. And I think their stories guide differently about personality and awakening. So that, that was a bit of a sidebar in some ways, but I hope you can take it from here. Yeah, I think one of you know, my desires in, in the conversation with you is, as I'm listening, we're exposing and questioning unquestioned assumptions, unexamined assumptions about who we are, how we live together, what our meaning and purpose is. So much of awakening is connected with personal significance. Our sense of meaning and place within our own sense of self and the broader world in relationships has this fundamental transformation. It's a deepening uh, shift in qualities as we awaken. We're relating to personality, curiosity, openness, being more receptive, these seem to be embodied qualities that we can further develop through practice, practices, spiritual practiceness. There's an expansiveness and spaciousness, an ability to embody presence when we're with each other, when we're interacting, a more full sense of interconnectedness with each other, and a deeper maybe expression or approach to what we conceive as unconditional love. And maybe one of the greatest challenges is as we open up this way and begin to flourish, it becomes difficult, maybe even painful, if in our personal relationships, we can't be seen or heard in this more fully flowered version of ourselves. That may be one of the reasons that marriages and relationships tend to break apart. Even being this compassionate, loving individual, there's a great deal of pain in not being witnessed as this new, more whole person. Or another way of, of looking at it maybe is I shed some of the personality that developed around my trauma and personal history, my insecurities, things that I'm, I'm trying to make up for that I maybe don't have the skill or experience to be able to do. So I build these defenses around my limited capacities and view of the world. And as that falls away, it's almost like a shell or a husk revealing this inner core of what we're becoming. 
And I've seen this happen where that can be perceived by others, depending on where they are in their own stage, is very threatening and challenging. And I'm sure we'll get into this down the road. One of the greatest challenges is that it's very difficult to see beyond the stage we're at. So when somebody comes into our life who may be at a different stage and they're sharing a perception, which is coming from a, a maybe a, a more expansive awareness, it can't be condensed and understood in the same way. And even sometimes just discussing the stages of development, I've, I've experienced people who have interpreted the conversation, the topic itself, they've experienced it as threatening. And even as criticism, just speaking broadly about perhaps there are these stages from certain perspectives, even that notion is threatening. So, or can be perceived as a threat or a criticism. So I, I don't find it difficult, that paradox of what happens when you, or if you do begin to more embody these qualities of openness, compassion, curiosity, unconditional love, and yet you're back in this relationship with somebody else who hasn't had that expansive shift they can't hear or see their partner anymore. And for that partner, that can be a, a very difficult relationship to maintain. I think you're making a really interesting case about who witnesses also. You know, there's who awakens, but who witnesses the awakening. And if your spouse is witnessing it or your brother is witnessing it, they might not witness it the same way that your friend who went to the same meditation retreat is witnessing it. And so again, I think you're making the case that, and I, I agree with you here, that awakening, no matter what the situation is, ostensibly can break through at least some of our habits and defenses because what we're breaking through to, let's say, let's say what, I'm going to call it the reality of love. I'm going to say that reality is really love. And love being this tremendous interest that we have in the world, whatever this place we find ourselves. You know, we have from before we're born even, we're very engaged. And it's only when we block the engagement because of our fears that we become depressed and anxious. So the engagement is always going to be helpful, even when we're engaging with suffering, even when we're engaging with insults and so on. But the awakening to the reality of love is going to get translated back through our personality, which also includes our tribe, our culture, our language, a whole lot of things that we're bringing in. And so let's say ostensibly, if we can continue to engage with the reality of love, especially with the people that are already in our lives, because those people, uh, I hate to say this, but you know, they really are you. I mean, so you have to be a little careful about who your friends are because 
you're becoming with them. You're becoming one thing. And so, you know, it's like those people, especially, it's extremely important to try to bring this reality of love. However, your personality will limit that because of your defenses, et cetera. I think that the more that we understand about these differences in development that we were talking about, that you were talking about, the easier it is to understand that, that the people walking around have these different paradigms, maps, ways of seeing things, and they, those differences count. And it's not as though the differences are criticizing you because some people will feel that, you know, that this somehow is a hierarchy and they don't want to hear about it. But it is the case that you may not be able to get somebody else's awakening. But if you try to get the people that are around you by bringing that curiosity and compassion it's more likely that you're going to develop your own awakening further. In other words, if you're coming back with, let's say, the bag full of your awakening and you're trying to give it away to the people around you and it's not working very well, you know, you should probably say, well, help me understand how you're hearing this, you know, how you're seeing this. That kind of curiosity, again, will help you. Because I said I was going to do this. I'm going to do a little bit of this. I'm going to talk a little bit about my own experiences of awakening in my early life. And then a little bit about there, there, there are a number of, of things I could say about later awakenings, but I'm only going to say one or two things. So the earliest experience I had was when I was three to four years old, was able to levitate. And now that could be psychotic. I'm not, I haven't ruled that out, but I did this thing that I can remember doing. I was in a field close to my house and I would spin around very, very fast, just spin, 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 spin. And then I would experience myself as lifting, very small lift, like about that long, just small, like a couple of inches off the ground. And I would do this repetitively. And of course, eventually I'd fall down from the spinning and so on. And it was kind of a secret that I, that I could do this. I did talk to my mother about it she thought I was kind of nuts, but you know, she didn't forbid it or anything. So that was my very first experience of doing something that seemed to break the rules of the world. And then after that, I had kind of long conversations with saints. This was when I began reading about the lives of the saints, and I kind of identified with those lives. And I never really thought at that point that my prayers and so on wouldn't reach them. So I would have these conversations. But then in the fourth grade, there was a day when um, I didn't get my homework done. I prayed to a particular saint, some Saint James, I don't remember the last name, that I should be helped by this homework problem. And the next day there was a snowstorm and the schools were all closed. And I was terrified of this result, which I of course assumed I had caused because of this little need I had about. So I was terrified that I had this power. And then I began to approach these awakenings much more from the perspective of the terror of the power of it. And that lasted for a long time and I won't go into that, 
But the, the thing that I want to illustrate about these first experiences that I had, the very first ones were very innocent and they didn't seem that special. They just seemed sort of ordinary. And I had a really good time and it was fine. And I carried them forward and they didn't seem to disrupt my life. Even though I, I might've spoken to some other people about the levitation thing, some other kids who probably didn't believe me. And, you know, I don't know if I tried to demonstrate it or what, but by the time I got to the point where I could really kind of connect cause and effect, and I believed then that I caused the snowstorm, I started to develop at a different level, an understanding of the power of awakening. And it was simply because I was at a different developmental stage. So and I, I also, just, I, I would love to just jump in and, yep. and comment that that act you just, the action you described in taking of physically spinning was a method of altering your own consciousness. Yes, it was. And I just happened onto it. It was something that I didn't, I don't know how I got started on it, but I got it and I was doing it. And the thing also about the snowstorm was something that, I don't know, somehow it was very profound. It was very profound to me. And I would say, even now, as I look back, I do believe that I caused a snowstorm. So I hear one of the interesting overlaps in, in many of these awakening experiences, particularly in psychedelics, is there at times appears to be a correspondence between my inner subjective reality and what appears in the observed reality, synchronicity. What I, what I describe as synchronicity, there is a connection between an inner sense of meaning, like I need the snowstorm, and then the universe obliges as if your inner state is being reflected back by universe. And from subjective experience, there seems to be this sense of causality, which goes back to the dimension we talked about, about pushing and pulling or trying to control. That's right. That's because right. Because without separation, there is no causality. There right. is no time. Right. So the thought and universe reflecting the thought are in essence, one and the same. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, you're right on all of those fronts and that early thing with the snowstorm had a big effect on me because I took it very seriously. And honestly, I've never been much of a materialist. I, you know, the reason I got into studying medieval philosophy and medieval studies is that they had an animated world. I was very aware when I came across the category of medieval studies, which was when I was an undergraduate, I, I came across an animated world. And I was like, that's the world. I, I, that's the world I'm in. And so, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, right now where I am, I have a very complex sense and, and still, you know, a lot of perplexity about how things interact, like how prayer, for example, has impact on people who are, who are beings, other beings that are in different places and times and so on. So I have perplexity about it, but I have certainty that it is the case. And, you know, when I, when I was younger, I believe I had certainty from a different perspective. Now I have a complex worldview with lots of experiences. And so the awakening experiences I have now 
when, for example, I drop into an absorption state or I am able to cultivate something that's called, it's a nimitta, it's an internal light. I, I have a kind of like regular ordinary feeling about them. Like, of course, you know, and I, I think that my sense of, of how do I want to say it, specialness about these experiences dropped away. I, I didn't have it in the beginning. And I think it dropped away again when I got enough information and knowledge about the Buddhist path because I could see the reports that other people had had these experiences. And then I could have the experiences within this framework of, yes, I can talk to other people about them. Yes, they're part of the human world. It's not something outside of the human world. And I, I think for me, one of the most important features developmentally for me is that what you and I are talking about in this podcast and what I'm doing now in my life of bringing real dialogue, working on transformative conflict, to me is a very ordinary way of expressing deep awakening. But it doesn't seem very special. It just seems, however, you know, if I talk to lots of different kinds of people about it, it sounds nutty. It doesn't sound, even from the beginning, you know, it can sound pretty nutty. But I think the way in my life that awakening changed from my early days of really being innocently involved in these activities to my now like hyper, super knowledgeable reading early Buddhism, Yogacara, Abhidharma, and so on, is that I've now got a system where I can make this stuff seem really ordinary, although it seemed ordinary in the beginning. So, you know, it's there's something about circumstances that we're in, personalities that we have, the ways that we language, what it is we consider to be awakening, that really affects what we do with it. And I guess that I wanted to make sure to kind of drop those things in the bucket. Well, you described an inner knowing that came through the lived experiences. And I just want to, I would like us to, to explore this going further in the future also about how do we validate that inner knowing? Again, to differentiate from our assumptions, assuming that we know something, how do we how do we interpret feedback from people, from universe, from ourselves to know whether or not that inner knowing is accurate, an accurate reflection of something beyond ourselves? Again, part of why these conversations are difficult is because everything we're touching on is slippery. Yes. yes <laughs> it, it can't yes, really yes. be nailed down. And it's 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 always in flux. Yes. In the same way as that if we're living more fully present it's as if we're in a flow state we also can't be nailed down because we're moving we're moving as if our our awareness is like water and it's seeking its level yes it's, its proper level and i i can bring this back around to some of those experiences like as a young child manipulating it seems as if this is built into us when we come into being this ability to play and alter our state of consciousness just through 
physical motion. So there's a connection from what I heard you describe of that spinning, as many of us have done on the playground when we were little kids. How do you differentiate that from ecstatic dance and whirling dervishes that use that intentional practice to alter their state? And yet as really young children, right? Without very much experience of the world, somehow we can experience this ourselves and alter our own awareness. And these are possibly some of those first steps, as I heard you express, in maybe gaining a bit of facility in altering our own perceptions and then examining those states and comparing and contrasting them with the ordinary state we live in. And as you brought in, our tribe, our culture. And I think even, even more important in what I heard you say is how we language. We take for granted the power of our words and that ability that we have that distinguishes us from many other animals on this planet. That ability to language, to use symbols to refer to things that aren't present in concrete reality really is a big differentiator for the human species. Absolutely. You know, that there's a whole lot of conversation we need to have about all the conversation. I think that as you were talking, I was thinking that in a sort of conclusive way to this, this particular episode, like who awakens? Well, it is the human in relationship that awakens. It's in, in the conversation that we're having, we're talking about humans awakening. Humans are always in relationship. There is no such thing as a human that is not in relationship. A human is born through relationship. A human comes into self-awareness through relationship. The human then has to be validated in her awakening through relationship. And I think that, you know, in my early life, I, I wasn't sure whether I, I, I mean, I had, I, there were many things about me that were peculiar and they were peculiar even for peculiar people. And so I wasn't sure how I was going to fit into anything really, but it didn't worry me a lot for some reason. And so I just sort of, I just sort of kind of bumbled along with this huge sort of interest that I had in the world. And over time, I came to find out that a lot of people, people around me in college and so on, by the time I was really getting more social, didn't see the world like I did, did not have the experiences I did, and, and were not interested in the things I was interested in. And so over time, I kind of found my group in the Buddhist world, I think. Those were my people. They started, you know, even as a young person, I could hear that the words were the words that I was understanding. But ultimately the witnessing, who witnesses you? And how do you receive that witnessing? Have you brought that reality of love into the way you receive it? And of course it won't be perfect and you won't do that infinitely. And even though, yes, as Blake said, and as Huckley said, are if we saw things as they are, they are infinite. But most of the time we see things as a human. And most of the time we see things through these limits. And yet we can bring this awareness of the 
infinite love, the reality of love. We can bring that into our relationships if we take ourselves lightly, you know, if we don't even take our awakening very seriously, if we assume that it was good luck or, you know, we happened into these circumstances, it wasn't because we knew exactly which magic pill to take. I think it's getting away from this idea that we controlled the whole thing or that we're very special that will allow us to bring our awakening back to others and, you know, try to give it away a little bit at least. But uh, there, you know, there are barriers if we do think we're special or that we believe this is a material world or we believe that it was that we that we did this by taking this pill or doing this particular meditation. And to just bring in, I guess, something from the world of psychedelics that relates directly to that is the sense that going into that experience i don't think i don't think many people who have or consider trying or using psychedelics do it without trepidation and one of the main takeaways and lessons is if you want to have a good experience it's proportional to your ability to surrender and let go if you try to form control drive shape that experience it usually doesn't go very well that's part of the experience is and, and the higher the dosage, if you're trying to have an experience of transcending or ego dissolution or transcending the default mode network, your ability to surrender is proportional to kind of the depth of the experience from, I guess that's that's a personal takeaway or insight, but it's the, the resistance to going with the flow of experience that I think is also connected to our ordinary, everyday conditioned personality. There is a resistance to being in the flow because we really want things to go the way we want them to go. We want that person that we like to say nice things to us and not criticize us. You know, we want to have that easy drive on the freeway without traffic, without road rage. We want to get acknowledged by the people we work with by our peers and we'd like you know in a way it, it you can think about it in a way like the movie with bill murray groundhog day where he's stuck in an endless loop which once he shifts his perspective and his perception of who and what he is he then is intrinsically motivated to become a better person because now from his perceptual awareness He's stuck in an infinite time loop. He has infinity to perfect himself. And then he chooses to perfect himself and applies himself to be, in a way, very compassionate, aware of others' needs. He begins as a very self-centered, focused character. And by expanding who he sees himself as and what gives him a sense of purpose and meaning, which become serving others and anticipating their needs and helping them ease their path, he winds up, I mean, again, it's a Hollywood fantasy, but it is a nice way of kind of framing what happens as you're going through this process of waking up. And then he has to pinch himself to see if he's really awake when he finally transcends the old self and wakes up in a new relationship also in the movie. So 
you know, yeah, it's a Hollywood movie, but in a way it does encapsulate a, a particular aspect of waking up and growing up. It was done with a Buddhist director. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great movie for teaching what you're talking about. And I was struck though, but by what you said about, you know, your attitude towards the psychedelic and how not having control over the experience and so on, if we could bring that to the spouse, to the partner, to the brother or the sister after we come back and we don't try to get a certain kind of mirroring for now our more profound sense of the, of the reality of love. You know, it seems like it's that, it's that when you said like, how can you get witnessed and people feel so alienated after they've had these breakthroughs that, that the ones around them don't see it. It seems like that same attitude has to come into the conflicts that we're having with the people who say whatever they say after you've had your waking up, you know, that, oh, they doubt it or they can't believe it or yes, you still have to go to work or whatever. You know, it's like still bringing that attitude, the attitude that you take towards the ayahuasca or the attitude you take towards your psychedelic, that that, that same attitude to bring it to the human being that you live with, the human being that you're estranged from, you know, that becomes a different kind of awakening. But you may find, as I have often seen in working with couples, that the reason why the other person has repeated this sort of question to you 85,000 times or told that story 16,000 times is the other person has not experienced you listening. They haven't felt that you were interested. So as soon as you show the interest, that whole thing melts away. And so, you know, it's that same attitude to bring it into the human relating recognizing also that you know who awakens but who witnesses and maybe there's more fluidity in that witnessing if you're able to drop what you're calling the ego or the default mode or whatever when you're in the conflict with the person who doesn't see you so i i don't know it's a big ask and i'm not sure it's possible but it's what what i try to do in dialogue therapy what i think we try to bring about some of the skills of real dialogue that there is this same attitude that we take towards the non-dual reality arising between us and another person who disagrees with us. You know, that they may have something to teach us, that they may have some perspective that is enlightening. I'm loving this conversation and I think we need to end this episode. So we will be coming back soon to talk about why wake up. Why should we go through any of this? What does it actually mean? And some of those things we've already touched on, but uh, so I'll see you soon, Mike. I'll see you soon. Thank you again, Polly. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app, and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation 
where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.